0: Hello, and welcome to the architecture channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nuchel De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Reinhold Martin, a historian of architecture and media and a professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University. Today we'll be talking about his book, Knowledge Worlds, Media, Materiality, and the Making of the Modern University, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Welcome, Reinhold, and thank you so much for making time to chat today.
1: Thank you so much. You know. Thank you so much for making the time and 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 you know reading the book so carefully. Uh,
0: and before we dive into the book, um, I thought it might be helpful for you to situate it within your larger body of writing on architecture and and media or architecture as media, because um, that's such a Key focus of the book. So, how did you come to this larger research interest, and what led you to write this book in particular?
1: Well, there there are a number of uh, points of departure for the book, um, and uh, and and in in a way, like we, we could say that this conversation, uh, for which I again am very grateful, uh, it brings a full circle uh, to some of the points of departure, which is to say the, the sort of different contexts and media uh, that have been understood in one way or another uh, as infrastructural, let's say, uh, to knowledge making and including you know, podcasts like this, um, and, and, uh, and in particular to academic uh, life culture. And practice. So uh, I actually began to, began in, in, in that sense, also, this um, book is a, is a bit of a return for me in, in terms of my own work to earlier uh, interests and earlier concerns, uh, most of which are collected uh, but not exhausted by any means uh, in my first book, The Organizational Complex, which uh, is an architectural and media history of corporations or. You know of corporate architecture in the expanded uh, sense um, that centers on research campuses and and other kind of inter- interfaces. Uh, ultimately, between uh, in the United States, corporations and academia in the context of the emergent military-industrial complex, eventually the military-industrial and academic complex. So, so in that sort of nexus, uh, many of these the concerns you know, that I pursued in, in this book were sort of lurking and there are bits and pieces that I'm quite directly building on, uh, in particular, the problem, as it were, of the university itself as a corporation and, um, and others that, that have emerged, you know, during the course uh, of doing this work. The, 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 the phrasing of your question is absolutely, I think, precise in, in this sense, because it's, it is exactly the sort of, let's say, distinction between architecture and media, like, you know, in the sense of architecture and, and photography or architecture and film, uh, of which there is a voluminous scholarship, uh, and architecture as media, or as I put it in that book, and I continue I, to rephrase in this one, uh, architecture as one among many media. Uh, so what that means uh, can be many things at once. Uh, it can also be understood uh, at both a, a sort of material and, and let's just say literal level, uh, and, uh, but also as a kind of uh, metaphorical level. So, for example, the expression computer architecture, which, again, I dealt with and, and historicized to some extent in the, the other book, uh it can be understood in, in at both levels at once. On the one hand there is a literal material architecture, including the design of the uh of the object itself, uh that runs through the history of computing, uh, and and then there's there's what sometimes is seen as a kind of metaphorical architecture, the kind of logical structure, uh, and so on. The approach to this to both books, uh but but kind of sort of focused in a particular way in, in knowledge worlds uh, has to do with the relation in a sense with those two levels we, we could call it the material and the ideational and uh, and in that sense the, um, the, the the larger project does have to do with exploring both methodologically and historically the, the limits as well as the possibilities of materialism uh, and and the kind of focus on material infrastructures that uh, media history uh, has, has in particular uh, invested quite heavily uh, in in recent years. And it was, again, in that context, uh, in, in institutional settings, conversations, debates amongst colleagues across fields in this kind of interdiscipline that we refer to, not so much as media studies, but media history, uh, uh, that in which in which I work, uh, that that some of these concerns uh, came into focus.
0: Yeah, you're pointing to so you're you're pulling together a number of threads here from you know architecture as one of many media, media um, and sort of the materiality of those media. Um, but I do want to kind of now begin to sort of home in on the university in particular. And in the book, you discuss or introduce the idea of a media complex. And the university as one such media complex. So, um, sort of in relation to this book, could you talk about what, a little bit about what you mean by this term?
1: Yeah. Um, well, in short, Plato's cave, but in 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 its mo- construed in its most literal form, but also of course as a as a figure uh, for for ideation and its its consequences in the history of philosophy as well as in uh in the history of intellectual work uh uh but also in its in its material uh form you know cave stone fire more sunlight uh shadows screens and and human beings uh interacting right in a in a sort of um set of uh socio-technical uh relations uh more more broadly more generally um you can think about the the, the um, media complex or a media complex as a network of objects and subjects, sort of wired together by a different scale. So there's also a scale dimension to it. From in this case, lighting fixtures to corporate persons, for example, uh, and and all of which in the in the content text of of thinking and, and historicizing uh, colleges and universities uh, as media complexes. Uh, are ways at grasping and and, and specifying the the, the the claim which is a central claim of the book um, that that these institutions universities constitute let's say provisional solutions to boundary problems uh, and in other words that you know the question is where is the inside and where is the outside where's the boundary uh, you know that separates Plato's cave from the realm of ideas and and um, and so uh, the the, that those boundaries are you know, often very, very direct and very literal. Uh, you know, things like gates, uh, admissions offices, uh, but also extension uh, stations, experiment stations, and ex- other forms of extension uh, that, that reach, you know, well beyond the material boundaries of, of, the, of, of the physical campus. And and so the um, the question as to uh, in in one direction, what architects would call plan uh where is the inside where is the outside how is how is that relation produced managed uh and and in a sense traversed um is is one you know general subject uh to and and set of questions to which the concept of the media complex provides a kind of map uh, and, and a way of kind of thinking through the the relation between gates admissions offices libraries and and uh, you know, corporations, for example. Um, and, and then in the other direction, what architects refer to as section, you know, cross-section uh, relations of above and below, uh, typically hierarchies of above and below, uh, both of which entail exclusions in, as well as inclusions, as well as a, a, along uh, the, the the lines that, that we can understand as passages in, in quite literally infrastructural Passages in in some sets, networks of communication, uh, in others, and uh, but also social and economic relations uh, at other levels. From the uh, relation of the university, the, the campus, for example, to its immediate urban or exurban environs, uh, to to the the question socially and economically of who does and does not have access to Plato's cave. Um, And so, uh, so the, 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 the inside, outside, upstairs, downstairs infrastructures, the ways of mediating those relations, uh, you, you know, from actual staircases to, uh, to, um, screens, uh, and access to both, um, are elements and 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 refer to dimensions and scales within media complexes uh, that are you know similarly pr- only provisionally bounded. Of course, one could extend, uh, for example, the post-war U.S. research university uh, into the military-industrial complex broadly construed and understand this uh, this system uh, or system of systems to operate at a, at a national and indeed transnational imperial scale. As well as uh, as the, that the kind of the scale, for example, of the laboratory, and what um, I am attempting to do, at least with this this concept, concept, is is in that sense to to think also and translate, in effect, another sort of very classically architectural question, the question of scale, uh, into um, media history and into a way of thinking both materially and. Uh, we can say ideationally, uh, about uh, the, the sort of uh, interpenetration of scales that, that I think is better described as kaleidoscopic rather than telescopic in the sense of nested one within the other. Uh, and I think, you know, any of us who work or study on or off campuses uh, of various kinds, um, are, are familiar almost intuitively with with this this, this kaleidoscope, um, the which on the one hand uh, can be experienced and manifest in, in very intimate uh, senses and intimate scales, like sitting in a library reading a book, um, and and while on the other uh, at the same at the same moment, but not necessarily in a simple linear kind of zooming in and zooming out, but but in a in a kind of collapse. Uh, uh, uh almost like a fractal collapse uh, of these sort of patterns one onto the other uh, clearly be and transparently in some cases be participating uh, in the production of knowledge and power and social relations and uh, economic uh, structures uh, that cannot simply be understood uh, at the scale of the chair table uh Reading room complex uh, that is uh, a library. So, so this is this this concept of the media complex is inherently scalar. It responds to hypotheses within media history, within infrastructure studies, uh, and so on that that have to do with questions concerning scale. uh, And but it does so in a in a in a very particular way that I think is. You know, resonates with, with with the both expansive and intensive uh, modes and descriptions uh, that we have across disciplines uh, now today that are concerned with a, a broad concept, a, a very broad media concept beyond the sort of narrow definition uh, of, let's say, information uh, storage and transmission devices and such. Um, but 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 the, the 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 principle of the media complex uh, responds very in in a in a way I think that can be distinguished from from other uh, other um other approaches and other strategies, uh, which I can just briefly encapsulate uh, in which I try in in the in the book to briefly encapsulate in the opening short prologue uh, with the kind of allegory we can call it the allegory of the dumb waiter uh, in Jefferson's Thomas Jefferson's dining room. In Monticello, a space, a public sphere that is not located on the University of Virginia campus per se, but is very much part of that campus from its, prior to its founding to to uh, immediately thereafter, uh, and is serviced and, in a sense, made possible uh, by the the labor uh, and the enslavement of uh, of dozens of individuals uh, who care for the you know sort of lives and and in the case of the dumbwaiter the conversation uh that is lived and practiced in the dining room amongst elite white uh sort of um uh, citizens and so so in on the one you know the intimacy of of the dining room jefferson's dining room and the even more profound and violent intimacy of slavery. Uh, is uh, I think kind of made tangible in the, in the dumb waiter, while at the same time um, uh, the, the the sort of extension of these systems, which overlap as I also try to show briefly in the um, in the uh, in the prologue, uh, with uh, ideas about public education and to which the University of Virginia itself is located, and the production of citizens, again, you know, universally white and male. In, in that context, um, that, that that extend across in Jefferson's uh, mind and work of the entire state, if not the entire nation, uh already at that time. So so that's another instance in which the tales, the, the scales, um, they in a sense collapse and and, uh, and overlap and enfold and more than simply telescope. Uh, since you have essentially the same relations mediated through different infrastructures, you know, from dumbwaiters to property lines, uh, at, at the different, uh, at the different levels.
0: Um, and I don't know whether you want to sort of talk about, you, you've you mentioned this a little bit now, but I don't know whether you want to talk a little bit about the the overall structure of the book that is you know, sort of divided into four different sections with two chapters in each section. Um, but I did want to, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about materiality and then this question of the threshold or the boundary, the the idea of inside and outside and the following questions. Um, but I want to first focus on one of the ideas you introduced, well that you've introduced in your earlier work and that you were introducing here in this book, which is the idea of the university as a corporate person. Um, what is the role of architecture in, as an apparatus in constituting the university as such? And what are some of the real effects of this legal fiction, this legal fiction of the corporate person on knowledge production in the university? And this is, I think, something that you go into into depth in the first chapter, but then it carries through the whole book.
1: Yes, yes, no. Uh, thanks for that. I, it, it's absolutely a central theme, and so it and and it's actually a great place to point from which to to think about the at least intended structure uh, of the book, including a kind of narrative arc, uh, as you as you um, say, uh, because the book is actually not a, a single story. It's not. It's not a history in a. In a Single narrative sense of universities or the transition from colleges, to residential colleges, into research universities, and so on. Uh, a lot of important and necessary work along those lines has been done, on which I rely, you know, very deeply. Such that I'm able, at least, to to attempt something different. And and really, it's on on the the basis of of these kind of more more integrated narratives. That, that this work is built. But so the way, yeah, I mean, there are these several different scales, again, at which to think about this, this structure. One is in terms of the four parts, um, which, uh, I, each of which contains two chapters. So so there's a kind of interplay within uh, each, each section or part um, that work their way chronologically from the very late 18th century. Into the last quarter or so of the twentieth century, uh, so basically from around eighteen hundred, give or take, to around nineteen seventy-five or so. In other words, from, from the uh, the the sort of age of liberalism uh, to the dawn uh, in in most accounts, or at least the most sort of you know sort of intuitive understandings of a neoliberal. Uh, era um, but this again is not a simple from to story and and in, in fact in the question that you're asking we already see um, aspects and in in a sense uh, figures uh that are again classically on the one hand associated with with in this case economic liberalism uh the corporate person being born and um, around um, in the early 19th century uh, of course the, the history goes goes much further back as well but but in, I pick up the story there uh, and and in a sense being reborn uh, in in the later 20th century uh, and particularly in particular on university campuses around the, the practice and processes of research uh, and um, and it's that birth that, that these kind of stories of birth and rebirth uh, of, of you know also of things like libraries, burning and being rebuilt, uh, and and institutions sometimes in, in in very direct ways, being founded and then refounded, that that I you know the structure of the book tries to to capture, so that so that we're we we are you know things do change right it's it's not a history of stasis this is not just eternal repetition in that sense. Uh, but rather, uh, it, this is a history of change at, at the scale of the entire book and, and this, uh, you know, almost two centuries, uh, but it's also a history of repetition uh, in a kind of recursive sense, uh, you know, something like a spiral in, in which, you know, there, there is a sense of having been there before, of uncanny, uncanny repetitions, uh, and and this figure of, of the corporate person is one is the one with which, as you say, I I begin, and 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 I I attempt to show how the the actual uh, constitution uh, and the material I mean by that I mean material constitution as well as legal constitution and reconstitution through a series of, of, of very well known uh, legal cases, Supreme the Supreme Court case of uh, uh, the Dartmouth case as it's as it's colloquially known. Um, uh, were underwritten or underpinned by the certain practices uh, that, uh, that had, had had come had formed had coalesced on these still very, you know relatively young or new and very small campuses like Dartmouth or Princeton, uh, that were basically single buildings. I mean, there was pretty much one or two buildings, a few maybe a handful. Uh, but, but so for example, Dartmouth Hall or Princeton Nassau Hall these phalanstery these like structures multi-purpose halls that was that that were that doubled as dormitories as, as instruct as, as classroom buildings and as administration uh, buildings in which um, what um, the period discourse um, called the furniture of the mind was installed and by furniture of the mind this is from the Yale report of, of the late 1820s. Uh, which took measure of this system um, the, by furniture. We can we can think of that furniture really more as a verb, like to furn- like furnishing of the mind, but but also I insist we need to think of this as as a noun or a collection of nouns, the material furnishing of the building and and the set of social and in media practices of of, of for example um, reciting repetitively and in a rote fashion. Classical verse in a in a recitation, um, or or uh, later in the, in the later chapter, uh, drawing circles on blackboards, uh, and and so um, th- those kinds of repetitions also belong, both of those belong to the the practice that again the period referred to as mental discipline, a kind of training of the mind, which was understood really as a kind of classical training, even when it it came to drawing figures um, and uh, geometrical figures um, uh, in the sense of training citizens. And and so uh, so in, in that respect, these buildings operated much like the disciplinary institutions that Michel Foucault studied, the, you know, including carceral institutions uh, around the same period. You know, this combination dormitory, Teaching administration building, uh, but but they also um, were built. I think you know Foucault kind of hints at this, but I, I try to 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 test it and to draw it out. They're built as much around and 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 produce and reproduce indiscipline as much as discipline. Uh, and you know, in other words, they're, they're extraordinary and quite funny stories. And which, which we have to understand also is very serious and very concerning stories of student violence, of, uh, you know, both intimate violence, which is unrecorded, of course, for the most part, in the dormitories, um, and most likely sexual, uh, completely unrecorded, but as far as I've been able to see, at least, but in, in this period. Uh, but, but also public violence, uh, like the, the setting off of explosive or the, sh- the shooting of guns uh in these buildings uh, as instances of you know what were seen to be in, of, of protests, sometimes playful, sometimes not, uh, to which the institutions responded with various regimes of discipline, all of which um, in a kind of dialectical interplay uh, operated to constitute, again through a series of technical uh, and material, practices and infrastructures, the, the 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 object that ultimately was understood and and and, and represented quite poetically by Edgar Allan Poe um, as an object of love. Poe witnessed it and, and withdrew in fact from these practices at the when he was a student at the University of Virginia and and his ode essentially to that uh, campus, uh, I think, uh, as I argue at least in the reading of, of the poem. Um, uh, is uh, is is a is a kind of ode to alma mater, uh, and, and expresses a kind of love for the corporate body that is constituted in in you know as a, a in in a kind of perverse solidarity of discipline and indiscipline in in and around these these campuses, and it's that love I think that con- that 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 helps to shape what we can from here on. Recognize as essentially the political economy of of education and of knowledge, to which institutions like alumni associations, uh, endowments, and uh, and other forms of, of giving, including corporate giving, um, uh, ways of paying respect and 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 and, and maintaining affiliation affiliation and filiation uh, with the the corporate person help to effectively produce what the the legal doctrine of corporate personhood recognizes as the immortality of that body. Uh, that's a very key uh, characteristic that, that is developed uh, across the, the you know, kind of uh, legal history of, of, of corporate persons. And, and this, these, you know, so all of this could be understood as a kind of convenient fiction or just a kind of fantasy about, you know, social belonging uh, and, and so on. But, but I do argue, um, as, as you asked, I think also uh, that that this is, and I rely on actually John Dewey's account of corporate personhood in the earlier twentieth century, um, uh, that this is performative, uh, that that in the sense of this a speech act, effectively the performative, you know, from 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 Austin to to Judith Butler. Um, uh, of a, of a, of a, of, a, of a, in this case uh, a media the performance of practices within the media complex that in a sense gives form and shape to this what sometimes is called the legal fiction of of the corporate person but a fiction if you if we still can call it that that i think is 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 eminently and, and in, in some cases profoundly real uh, with the kind of real material effects uh, at both the economic and political level uh, that that I was just you know kind of hinting at um, with um, the building up of endowments out of love, uh, if not necessarily generosity.
0: Yeah, and alongside this uh, figure of the university as corporate um, person, in this same section, you do a very different reading of um, uh, the a mathematical figure. Um, sort of the quotidian geometrical figure um, in in books of instruction, and the ways in which uh, these figures intersect with um, the lines of architectural drawing in producing an object lesson. So you know, sort of like in 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 terms of how um, educational theorist Pestalozzi has put it, this idea of a very concrete thing that you can use to. Extrapolate and hone abstract reasoning. The idea is that you know being able to think abstractly is is the sort of you know a mark of civilization. But in your analysis, you do this very interesting move in which you kind of um, make the status of of the object and you know the the concrete object and the the abstract um, ambiguous by kind of arriving at a reading of the visual image as. Both a concrete thing and also an abstraction. and what are the what are the implications of this this two-way abstraction between um in 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 the textbooks that you describe, and what does it do for instruction?
1: Um, yeah, no, again, asking inquiring into the implications is is I what I you know in effect have hoped to, you know that to evoke as as a response because on the one hand, uh, this this chapter on, the translation of Euclid, actually the Euclid as a textbook, um, Euclid's Elements, in a in a set of different contexts in the early 19th century, uh, is you know is 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 a simply a description of the different ways in that in which that took place and the channels which that occurred and, and therefore a contribution uh, to to media history in the, in a in narrow sense of understanding print culture and in this case textbooks as components or elements in, in what again I'm referring to as media complexes. However, um, as, as your inquiry into implications implies, this is also uh, much more than that. Um, uh, it's it's, a, it's a, in a way a, uh, an inquiry from the direction uh, of engineering schools and of the land-grant institutions uh, the A um, and the which come later, but we have their precursors already, um, into uh, into the um, sanctity uh, of classical learning, which on the one hand produced um, critical humanists, uh, and on the other uh, produced imperial sovereigns, and and so it's that ambiguity, also the kind of double edge of uh of classical learning uh which continues you know to this day in debates and i pick up some of that in another chapter uh the so-called culture wars around uh the you know the the the, the canon western canon and so on um it, all of it you know th- these are usually center on texts on written texts on you know on poetry on literature uh, sometimes on historical texts uh and what i'm Suggesting here is that we should also think about these these problems, which are boundary problems, um, uh, in relation to visual documents, uh, as as you say, and and in this case, or, or in, the, in the case of Euclid and the different translations that I compare, uh, and I'm again building on and respond, but also responding to uh, other existing literature, secondary uh, literature, on, in both in on, on classical studies and on history of geometry. Um, that uh, that interprets these this evidence in different ways, uh, but that but basically construes Euclid. You know, it's, I think it's fairly obvious as a classical text, and and says, okay, if we're going to con- concern ourselves with classical learning and its uh, its past and its future, then we need also to account for that which is um, is not usually collected. In you know, side by side in in the debates about, you know, especially this is these are the colleges really the the liberal colleges the liberal what are now the liberal arts colleges uh, that are in, some of which are embedded in universities and some of which remain independent but uh, in which uh, undergraduates are trained uh, as as citizens at least in those days, um, and so so that's one dialectic and and I I should reinforce here that that methodologically uh the the ambiguities that you're you know uh, alluding to also uh are i understand uh again at various levels and different scales uh, dialectically as conflicts uh and and contradictions frequently um again amongst different interests different different actors sometimes uh uh, some of which, uh, some of which are, are perhaps provisionally synthesized, but none of which are, are ultimately fully synthesized, and, and all of which interact in a, in a manner that that is is comparable to and, and and I argue dependent upon the different scales and and levels at which the elements of media complexes that mediate those complexes as well as construct them, you know, um, interact. Uh, and so, what we have uh, across the book as well as within chapters like this, uh, is a dialectic of dialectics. In other words, there's the, the dialectical tension within Euclid between textual and visual uh, representation and, and knowledge production or at least reproduction uh, in these you know recitations in which students are trained to repeat. Um, and at the same time at the, but maybe at a different scale, the tension between humanistic and the production of humanistic, uh, learning or reproduction, you know, in the form of uh, of, of, of um, mostly elite citizens and uh, technical uh, or practical learning uh, in the form of uh, what the, if I'm paraphrasing, the legislation for the land grant colleges called the sons and daughters of farmers and mechanics. So a different social class. Um, uh, that who inhabited uh, engineering schools but also came together uh, with some of the others at least uh, at institutions like West Point uh, which was one of the first contexts in which Euclid was translated uh, from the French translation so um, so the um, a, a governing conflict at the at the scale of the textbook that I try to follow and then try to reconstruct in its Relation to these others um, is that be, between, as as you've said, uh, visual and verbal um, learning uh, that 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 has to do with where the the translators would put the diagrams, uh, you know, and and there's there's a limit to to how far one can push this, I think, but but the because there are, there are other reasons for collecting all the visuals in the back of the book, um, but that's essentially what happened is that in some of the translations, uh, the um, uh, one direction uh, you find the visual the diagrams the circles and, and the rest um, uh gathered uh and enumerated you know indexed at at the back of the book in fold out plates and uh and in others they're integrated into the text which is closer to the to some of the original the prior translations uh and but with this the point being that regardless of the probably several reasons for that uh that this correlates with and was at the time correlated with um, uh, different forms of knowledge reproduction which is to say um knowledge verbal and textual knowledge that leads to the algebra and eventually to the calculus and eventually to university-based higher uh, learning in mathematics so that is research uh university not college-based in that sense uh and um because by the middle of the 19th century it was acquired uh, familiarity with, with with Euclid was required for entry into Harvard College uh, which is then where some of this discourse was seeded around the future of mathematics um, and um, and then uh, practical uh, knowledge which which is not um, necessarily uh, instrumental in, in this is the point in a way that that the, the kind of attendant distinction between pure and applied learning or disinterested and interested knowledge or or pure and 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 instrumental or non-instrumental etc that kind of distinction i think collapses or at least um is is troubled by and enters into a kind of internal conflict uh the 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 recognition that that even in the engineering schools the repetition of, of of these diagrams was seen also as a form of mental discipline, a training into another kind of citizenship, in some sense a more democratic citizenship, if we recognize the social, the larger social class uh, to which these institutions were dedicated. Um, the we we you know the, the, we're not this is not simply how to make a machine, uh, because that's that's the, was the thinking that that the, a machine is a complex of Circles, lines, tangents—you know—and other Euclidean figures, um, but but rather uh, rather uh, a way to make subjects, to way to make you know potentially democratic subjects, or to train them into uh, the logic of, of of mechanization, and and of course also into both into industrial capital. Classical learning was also trending into industrial capital. It's it's a it's a misrecognition to to make that distinction. Um, and so uh, so this is the, the tension that I explore uh, in, in, in the book in, in, the ch- in that chapter in the book and in other uh, elsewhere in the book as well. Um, so that uh, you know I, I hope in, in one way the, the net result is sort of twofold. Uh, one is to effectively elevate Euclid into the status of the classical languages uh, that were you know uh, the center of the classical curriculum still defended today so if we're going to defend Homer and and the rest we need to defend Euclid and, and, and it's done it's, it's not that that this is not practiced uh, but but today but but I I think it's you know still not widely recognized that visual literacy and verbal literacy can go together here and while on the other hand to some extent deflating uh the the classical curriculum into uh, what another chapter the, the subsequent chapter describes as just another list. Uh, and And that is foreshadowed here. I, I won't give all the detail, but by the lists uh, of bodies, dead, dead bodies that campuses after the Civil War started to collect and then publish, meaning build uh, in memorials uh, on you know listing the war dead of their alumni on the campus as another way uh, to constitute and reconstitute. Uh, to found and refound the corporate body, um, and and so as as haunted by the deaths, and but also by the unresolved conflict that like, the large and, and and ongoing today conflict um, that uh, that we call the civil war.
0: And what you're pointing to here is the fact that one can kind of read your book chapter by chapter, or as a series of several themes that actually cut. Across the book, um, including this idea of the corporate figure of you know the, these um, uh, in terms of lists, you have a chapter on on the lists of great books and how that becomes constituted and debated, and um, you know the, the the material apparatus that sort of supports and and. Um, uh, resists those lists. Uh, but I want to focus a little bit on print culture, um, you know, moving from Euclid to your discussion of what you call print agriculture, um, or these technical bulletins that were produced, um, to circulate agricultural knowledge that also then goes on to shape the energy industry. Um, because with it, and and this is something, you know, uh, uh, kind of a Um, a representation or phrasing of yours that I particularly like the way you so neatly bind the cultivation of the mind or culture to the cultivation of the ground or agriculture. Um, And another reason I find it so uh, fascinating is that as you point out what makes it possible to circulate this vast quantity of literature, which also occupies an ambiguous state between, you know, pile of papers and book, Um, you know, its status as book is, is, you know, contested, debated. But what makes it possible to circulate this quantity of literature to a dispersed audience is, if I understand correctly, a kind of predecessor to media meal, that boon to scholars moving across the country. So with their lost, you know, large quantities <laughs> yeah, <right>. of books <laughs> and libraries. Um, so I was, you know, I was very struck by this chapter. And, uh, and I was curious about, or rather, not, not. I'm curious about. I I would like you to be able to share with listeners how this mode of disseminating knowledge shapes, you know, not just the way uh, knowledge is disseminated in the U.S., but then also the international reach of land grant universities.
1: Yeah, and also email. We could say we could yeah. uh, and PDF attachments and and so on. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, first of all, again, I in in this and as in every other. Um, chapter in the book, I am indebted to work by colleagues and others. You know, this is all, like any book, all books are collaborative, right? Directly or indirectly. Sometimes we acknowledge, sometimes we don't, sometimes but but in, in this case the um there, there there are several different dialogues going on at once. Um I'll just select the most direct one in response to your question, which has to do with the relation between cultivation of the mind and and, and agriculture. Uh this is a direct response to the uh, hypothesis uh, within uh, a, a, a originally German language branch of uh, media history uh, and uh, and media theory uh, th- uh, that uh, the centers on or cultural techniques uh, that, that a term that in German has its origins in 19th century agriculture so, uh, and is is and and, and the and the, the sort of users of this language today uh whom i cite um in the book uh uh use use it consciously as as a kind of, in this kind of double or there's even two or three levels of meaning attached to the term so so i i share in this conversation but i uh, i want to bring it a little bit Closer to the ground, literally on in, in, into the onto the ground, and also under it, as you mentioned in the kind of one of the concluding sections of the chapter um, when we discuss oil wells. But um, but that has to do with uh, yeah. This on the one hand, this network of postal systems, transportation, uh, telegraph, other communications infrastructures that grew dramatically in the later 19th century uh and formed a kind of basis for uh the land-grant institutions you know setting up in in locations that were quite remote from other what were still sort of more centers of knowledge on the, in the u.s on the east coast uh in, in in the after the civil war the moral act the first moral act that founded those institutions was passed during the civil war and. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, the extension, as I've mentioned already, of those and many other institutions into landscapes, uh, both material like like natural and technological, uh, uh, well beyond the campus boundaries. So, uh, so some of the, the examples that I I follow here at Wisconsin and Arizona. Um, are uh, are examples of of uh, agricultural uh, experiment stations set up off campus that required for their very existence, but at the same time fed and 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 and, and you know contribute to the growth of what you know you're I think quite rightly describing as media mail. You know the the, the circulation of the pamphlets and other gray literature uh, internationally, uh, really. What, what's also interesting is that that circulation, you know, technical reports on water quality, on soil, on 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 plants, um, and their on plant ecology, essentially, in in different uh, settings, uh, is accompanied by the actual circulation across the same networks of plants, seeds, and and water. Uh, among other things, and and samples basically that move because this is what happens is that in, in these agricultural settings, in in the case of of both Arizona and Wisconsin, farmers become collaborators. They become co-PIs, we can say, co-researchers, often not named. I try to name some in in, in Wisconsin in particular, but uh, and and this is a, a, a practice I attempt to adhere to throughout the book of of naming names that are written out of of these histories uh including those as who, who served jefferson uh in uh in in monticello and also in another case who rang the bell that called students to class uh, at U- uva and broke the silence in the library at, at virginia so so there you know there are essentially service workers but they're also uh co-researchers in in, in the agricultural colleges in this case more so, uh, who who contribute to this circulation, and and they, they you know so these pamphlets, so they would send out like requests, send us your samples, and and we're going to analyze those samples. They analyze seed, they analyze you know particular crops, uh, and and barley is is a is a topic of great interest. You know, in Wisconsin, we have the beer industry uh, developing there, but but among other things, but um, and uh, and so. You know, it's it's kind of extraordinary thing, and this extends ultimately. And and I follow uh, one of these other figures uh, from Arizona to North Africa to to and 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 to other sites, colonial uh, sites uh, with the, the center on the, the cultivation of cotton and the cotton industry. Uh, you know, in Egypt, for example, he's there for a while, and um, and uh, and try to explain. Uh, how what, as you say, I refer to as print agriculture, uh, belongs to the networks of more classically understood print culture that, in turn, belong to and help sustain the networks of empire. This is these are forms of imperial knowledge, uh, and so it's in this case triangulates in it tri- triangulates from basically from uh, from Arizona to France to to Egypt and other African. Uh, locales um, uh, to the Niger Delta, for example. But um, the uh, and, and so, you know, this is not simply in a in a naive sense, the extension of American university based knowledge into some in, in imperium, American imperium. It is that uh, in a variety of ways. But but it's the what we're seeing here is the interaction of of old empires and new uh, uh basically through these channels and and you know through the movement of, the, of things like date palms uh and, and 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 but also very importantly and i, I want to emphasize this because uh you know it's implicit in 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 the figure of the of the corporate person i alluded to it mentioning Edgar allen poe and of course it's it's everywhere when we consider uh architecture as one among many media that that what we are also dealing with um it are, are, it is the symbolic form uh, of uh, of empire, uh, and by that I, I, I mean I mean I use that terminology in in the combined sense of the philosopher Ernst Kasirer and the art historian Aaron Panofsky, uh, who both of whom and Panofsky in particular make an appearance toward the end of the book. It's in fact Panofsky's son Wolfgang who we find. Uh, in the Stanford Linear Accelerator as its founding director, um, but uh, but but this the, another symbolic form. But the, the the circulation of symbols, like discrete symbols, uh, like date palms, for example, but also uh, signifying infrastructures out of which uh, a syntax and a grammar and a and a, uh, a larger in the Panofskyan sense logic of symbolic form arises. So you know what perspective was. To Panofsky, uh, the frontier is in a modified sense, uh, I think, to the later 19th century, particularly in the U.S. And, and it's these, these institutions are mediating, producing, these are frontier institutions, they're mediating and uh, producing settler colonialism uh, and, and the occupation of, of these, these spaces and the displacement of indigenous inhabitants uh um, you know and it it's usually sort of so these are bloody uh practices, but the blood is not does not appear on the paper it's just not there either in Africa or in arizona and um uh and it and we have to look elsewhere and and I try to do that again in in later chapters uh for more direct material evidence but nonetheless uh these these are sites the agricultural experimentations. Uh, experiment stations, um, not only for the production of a particular, and in some ways a new kind of knowledge, scientific agriculture, which is very important for Marx, for example, in understanding um, industrialization uh, and uh, at the same time um, um, settlement and and violent displacement. Uh, uh, and so uh, we, but 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 also, uh, you know, enlightened knowledge. Uh, and I again, I didn't mention this particular footnote or footnote to the footnotes, but I'll bring it up here. Uh, again, it's made literal in, a, in another chapter. But uh, the, the entire book is a kind of running dialogue with uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno's uh, and, and thesis uh, uh, in the Dialectic of Enlightenment as to uh, the betrayal. Uh, or the internal contradictions, at least, and per- perhaps betrayal of the Enlightenment project. Because I think there's a kind of poignancy also of um, this sort of, you know, <laughs> fragility of, of of this kind of knowledge and, and, and this kind of work, and of the farmers sending their seeds and the survival and, and so on. That, that is at somebody else's expense for sure, uh, and needs to be marked as such. But at the same time, is also uh, contributing to a biopolitics of life um and so these are life and death relations you know just like the memorials uh and 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 these campuses are 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 both they're both kind of memorials to to lives lived and, and and lived on like the corporate person but also uh the 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 possibility of of science and technology uh to to enhance life uh you know in a kind of Humane and humanistic sense, which is another reason that it's important to recognize um, the allegedly, for Adorno and Horkheimer for sure, instrumental reason cultivated or practiced in you know engineering schools. You know that was like the worst. <laughs> to them. Uh, as contributing in a humanistic, potentially humanistic uh, sense uh, to to life and and uh, and to collective life and and and, and uh, life lived together so again that that's one that's, that's another uh, dialectic uh, un, completely unresolved but very much built into the these postal transactions uh, and also uh, as as you mentioned the the very problem of where to put these pamphlets when they do get collected in university libraries the case of the University of Pennsylvania um, and and the collection of the economist Marx's favorite, American economist Henry Carey, um, his collection of, of pamphlets. He was a real pamphlet here. Um, the problem that they had of, of and, and of, of Dewey, the other Dewey, of the Dewey Decimal Dewey, Dewey Dewey Decimal System, uh, of indexing and, and recording these pamphlets feeds back into the sort of headquarters, you know, of the research libraries, and, and also in, in, in other places. I mean, because these circulated very importantly. I don't speak too much about that. But into into government institutions, uh, in the Department of Agriculture, for example, in D.C. Uh, and there's a whole other set of transactions with the GLO, the, the General Land Office, and that that again speak more directly to the ongoing occupation uh, of um, of the of the land.
0: Yeah, and I found that chapter particularly interesting. Um as I, you know, borrow books from libraries and, and see books on museums, for example, in India being, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, accessioned into libraries, thanks to the public law 480 program, which is, again, another great um, uh, program that that uh, collapses culture and agriculture in, in, in the in that kind of sort of Reading of cultivation that you're looking at, um, so I was particularly interested in that uh, chapter as a result. And you, you know, in this, in, in talking about this chapter, you you've been talking about interfaces, frontiers, the 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 space, the thickness of 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 what we sometimes call a boundary um, uh, that we kind of think of as a line, but has you know um, a three dimensionality to it. Uh, and this is something that runs through the whole book, but really, I think, uh, kind of reaches its um, apex or sort of culminates in in the last two chapters on on symbols. Um, you really look at different kinds of frontiers, sort of threshold spaces within the university. You know, the interface between what we call town and gown. Um, and even the, the the metaphorical, I guess, also real endless frontier of, of science. And so you look at different kinds of frontier spaces and, and the way they are, um, you know, the way they are articulated, the way they are collapsed in the space of the university, and the ways in which they contribute to sometimes an ambiguous subjectivity of of the various denizens of of. The uni- of you know who are in these university spaces, or well, going in and out of them rather. Um, could you talk a bit about that?
1: Uh, yeah, I, and in fact, I I will begin with at the beginning of the book to uh, it just uh, uh, just very quickly to elucidate the stakes as I conceive them because the book, the introduction to the book begins with a close reading, a close archival reading of of a text by Edward Said, the world, the text, and the critic. Uh, through which, through the, through the Said's archive, which is at Columbia, uh, I attempt to explain in homage, but also in extension or, or sort of elaboration of, uh, of, of Said's argument, uh, uh, the concept of world and attendant ideas like worldliness, that, uh, to which I've really been alluding throughout our conversation and, and which are named in the title of the book. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, the world does expand, uh, you know, spatially and and also temporally, uh, but also in, in the latter section of the book uh, in, in correspondence with the with the building out of what we were just discussing, the American imperium and eventually the military industrial complex. Uh, and so this is, again, a way of thinking one form of imperialism in relation to another, the kind of imperialism that was contested on very famously and importantly on the Berkeley campus at the very threshold at Sather Gate, this, in this kind of ambiguous space that, you know, they that they exploited as both legally on the campus and not on the campus and had to do where you could set up your table and where you didn't set up your table. And, and um, and and i you know try to use that case as as uh, as a way to recognize oppositional work done often led by students uh but also you know done by faculty and uh uh to these processes and saeed is a is an extraordinary example um as boundary work right uh, uh of you know at, at various levels uh that that needs to take to both recognize and perhaps straddle at least Knowingly and maybe strategically take advantage of these the ambiguities and and topological enfoldings of inside and outside that we've been discussing, and so the the, the so and I use that, that term enfolding as as a way to you know respond to to I think the the first part of your question, which uh, has to do with the you know the, the elaboration of Frederick Jackson Turner, Turner's frontier thesis um in the chapter on that, that centers on the Berkeley campus, uh, that as uh, as 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 a, as a turning inward and, uh, as well as a, a kind of limit territorial limit to imperial expansion because of course you know Turner gave that speech uh, in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair and right about the time that the u.S was embarking on its, more formally, imperial ventures, you know, in, in the Philippines and in the Caribbean, and so. On. so um, but uh, but Turner also, in in other some of his other writings, um, suggested the uh, the necessity, which I pick up in these later chapters, uh, uh, for the sake of what Marx would have called primary or primitive accumulation, uh, but also then. For the uh, uh, mediation of raw materials like uh, gold or iron ore or wheat or oil uh, into capital, but intellectual property, or as well as uh, and knowledge circulating in these pamphlets, as well as uh, material goods and money and so on, um, that uh, that 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 this required a turning inwards, like into the laboratory. Uh, and and so the last couple of chapters chapters a few chapters really in in a kind of zigzag sequence follow some of these turnings inward that are also turnings outward so that's that's one of the spatial paradoxes if you like of of this media complex that to go inside is to go outside you know <laughs> so there's nowhere that is more exposed to to the you know let's say logic of you know, Lockheed and Raytheon and the various corporate persons running the military-industrial complex than a laboratory at MIT uh, or, you know, any other such laboratory hardwired. Uh, and it's exactly that, those relations that the students in the free speech movement and, and in the, the anti-Vietnam War movement, anti-war movement, civil rights movement, some of them came together on, on campuses in the later 1960s uh, were contesting. They were contesting. They were. They were basically speaking both through and with and against a media complex. Uh, and and I you know I try to document that uh, and so that's one way of thinking town and gown and and, and those those sorts of um, uh, conflicts as well, uh, Emblematized on the Berkeley campus by the cyclotron building up on up on the hill it was an event which is an incredibly intense. I mean a, a really profound turning inwards. Towards the, the 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 you know kind of inner structure of the atom, and a huge machine, and not just the machine, but the the apparatus of big science, integrated. This was started during the war. Later, in, integrated into the Manhattan Project, and and later into into you know the the development of nuclear physics, the growth of nuclear physics on these campuses, and, and by extension of the Cold War, um, in uh, in the in buildings like that. Uh, but also in little details like the the, the little pieces of hardware, um, like the Stanford Klystrom, which was the, the basis uh, of its. Own, this is a microwave amplifier that was developed at at Stanford and was was by the figures who would later go on to found Varian Associates, which is one of the mythic uh, institutions. Uh, and, you know the kind of mythic origins of, the, of of Silicon Valley, um, and and was used to build what. Frederick Terman, the provost, uh, uh, Stanford provost, and then president, who who uh, developed this this figure. This is again this, this symbolic figure, of poetics of the of the Kleistron and of, of electrical engineering, called the steeples of excellence. So you know, very corny and cliche association of, of which Stanford is not uh, you know of college campuses uh, you know, uh, with with Gothic architecture. Uh, but um, but on the other hand uh, uh, quite an apt uh, i think signifier um, and representation of the neoliberal liberal logic of of academic corporate and often military research uh the nexus against which the students protested that was uh, that was also um, uh, stored the, the the archives of which uh, the, uh, uh, of its its Sort of ideology uh, were stored uh, and continue to be produced and reproduced at Stanford's other ambiguously um, figural steeple, the Hoover Institution, the Hoover the Tower of the Hoover Library. So, uh, so the um, so there's yeah there's there's uh, throughout um, these these last uh, few chapters. I mean, you know, formally this this is the second part of the book, so there are four chapters. Uh, one that begins at actually at UVA. So, this is one of the examples of going backwards in order to go forwards, but uh, ends at Columbia. And, and with the, uh, in fact, it doesn't actually end at Columbia, it ends uh, in, in New Delhi uh, and, and, and Mumbai, Bombay, uh, with Bimra uh, Ambedkar. Uh, sometimes I think mistakenly, you know, kind of misrecognized as the, the Thomas Jefferson of India. I mean, the, the author of the Indian Constitution, uh, a political radical uh, who who trained in economics under uh, in, in in at, at Columbia, uh, sitting, uh, you know, for an unknown amount of time, but certainly a lot of time, uh, in Low Library, the the Central Rotunda Library, uh, that at the time he was a student was illuminated by this enchanted. Tragic Moon, a lighting fixture uh, produced technologically in collaboration by a collaboration of the architect Charles McKim and the physicist William Halleck, uh, that provided moonlight, indirect light, not for reading per se, but a kind of ambient light uh, for readers like Ambedkar to participate uh, in the processes of enlightened learning and. Critical education, uh, along with other figures like Baker's mentor, one of his mentors, John Dewey, um, in the same institution, such that you know, and this is this is the response to, to, uh, uh, to Aduino and Horkheimer. No, it didn't end, uh, in, you know, in in 1945, uh, you know, with the horror uh, and the tragedies of, of the war. Uh, this dialectic. Continued, and Ambedkar is one of its bearers, uh, as uh, as he ac- attempted to claim rights uh, for 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 Dalits, his own caste, uh, and it attempted to build into the Indian Constitution, not necessarily with with full success, but uh, uh, the uh, you know uh, a dismantling or at least a mitigation of the caste system. That continues to this day to be contested and opposed by, uh, caste Hindus in particular, uh, in uh, the new, you know, under the, the resurgent nationalist sign of India Rising, and so um, the, uh, you know, there there are there are contemporary histories, you know, in that sense written into these 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 uh, these, these accounts. Um, but, but it's, it's again that the kind of intimacy of moonlight, like reading by moonlight and the poetics of that, uh, technologically produced moonlight nonetheless. Um, very different than the fireworks that at least potentially illuminated the, the sphere, the celestial sphere in the center of Boulet's cenotaph to Newton, uh, from a, a century prior. So, uh, so a dim, Light to, with, with by which to read, but importantly, by which to read silently. And so, to, so the this the intimacies of silence produced again. And uh, we'll go back yet again to not only to Jefferson's uh, um, dining room, the enslaved production of silence there, but uh, through dumb waiters, but also uh, to the library at Virginia, uh, on which the Columbia Library was based and uh in which the practice of silent reading was reinforced and 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 produced partly by the bells being rung that structured the day such that time could be set aside for for this this kind of work that library had in the meantime burned and with it thomas jefferson's own library which uh, a significant portion of which his books he had donated to the to the university uh, and but was it the, was being at the same time that in the late 19th, 1890s, being redesigned and rebuilt by the same architects McKim, Mead, and White, and in a somewhat inflated form that, that was on the UVA campus until it was later restored, um, that that could be compared to it actually had the same lighting fixtures as Columbia's uh, Low Library, uh, which itself was built with money from the trade with China, so that was the Low family's money. And so, so that, that that story of the, in a sense, the relation between universities and capital continues, uh, and and it continues again in the laboratories, libraries, and other uh, uh, knowledge-producing and, and and learning and teaching spaces, uh, inside and out uh, of of these uh, more recent more recent campuses so so the logic of the, the frontier in that sense folds inwards and can be found on the laboratory table and under the microscope uh, as well as out there you know at the gate of the university the the and the, in the conflicts with with neighbors with residents of the surrounding cities for example uh or um or or in the in the larger uh, geopolitics of knowledge uh, into which the research universities were integrated I will just add one but much much more uh, I mean very present in our in today's um, border wars uh, which uh, are the culture wars that were fought around these lists um, that we call syllabi uh, that uh, were also, uh, in uh, forms of infolding of, of ideas about, you know, territorial, but also intellectual sovereignty, um, uh, about the, uh, the greatness of certain books uh, uh, at the expense of others, uh, you know, because that's what a list is. It's a decision about something being on and something being off. It's, all, it's a list is as much about what's not on it as what's on it. And that, of course, has been the basis. For the for, for very you know kind of practical, but also very philosophical and political contestations uh, of, of around that have arisen around syllabi around curricula and continue to run up and down our educational system in this country and of course all around the world in a variety of different manners. Um, uh, as as we recognize again that the humanities play a central role. In the production and reproduction uh, of, on the one hand, um, freedom uh, and equality, and on the other, power and inequality. Uh, and so, so you know, wh- whereas uh, another, you know, kind of this is this comes up in in the last chapter in which Lewis Mumford appears uh, quite. Uh, I think desperately trying to set up a humanities curriculum at Stanford, and just as the steeples of excellence are being built, right? Um, that, uh, but a very, you know, a, a, a kind of dewey Deweyesque, uh, you know, uh, not not a classical curriculum, but it, although it has shades of that, but but a uh, one that that's that that responds to the sort of, uh, you know, I think very much enlightened, but also constrained parameters given by American pragmatism. Um, but but it it uh, but it at the same time it, we have to recognize and this is maybe more evident in the in the, um, the case of the campus chapel at MIT and and if we remember that that we still our campuses in you know are are populated still with chapels non denominational in most but not all cases. Uh, but uh, that that are in, in themselves reminders of the origins of these institutions as, as ecclesiastical colleges, not MIT, but they still uh, they built a chapel after the war. Why? Because because in effectively um, technics uh, and, and well, you know what um, Mumford referred to later as the machine, like the mega machine, demanded meaning. It 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 in a way this was not just a compensatory gesture you know, to offset the empty technical rationality of the laboratory and the military-industrial complex. This is a part, like the geometrical diagrams, a part of the logic of the military-industrial complex is to build a chap, to produce and reproduce meaning. At MIT, to found a humanities, you know, department, in which the School of Architecture was, and to this this day, remains a a, a kind of key component, Um, uh, quite ambiguously. but so so that that the, the kind of even as the humanities are being defunded uh, and displaced by big investments in linear accelerators, because, you know, th- at some point th- there, there is uh, something like a zero sum process, not not absolute, but, but there are limits to, to where the money is going to go. And the money starts going very, very dramatically and emphatically towards big science and large and, and extensions, to, you know, various other forms of outreach. And, you know, we, we, we know the story. But and, and a, a very important part of this story has been and remains the defunding uh, of the humanities uh, and, and, and of course, but also the symbolic assault on the humanities. But that is, assault is, and I think even in a, in a more, this should be even more worrying, a kind of deadly embrace. Uh, that goes back to the, the 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 culture wars of the 1980s, in which the point amongst at least the particular culture warriors who sought to protect, preserve, and enhance the Western canon uh, was not to do away with the classics. On the other, on uh, and and with humanities learning, it was it was in fact to to invest in that. Uh, you know, some of these folks were just as dismayed uh, at, at all that military spending. As as their ideological opponents in the seminars and <clears throat> uh, in the humanities, uh, and so so that too, the, the, you know, the, the the sort of contested status of the humanities, I think, sheds shed some light on uh, on on certain truths about power, the relation between power and knowledge, and 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 this sort of political economy also uh, of, of 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 universities. During, in particular, this post-war conjuncture, that both comports with, but also modifies the uh, the sort of let's say the the more that's sort of probably necessarily reductive um, battle cries in defense of the humanities, uh, you know, against this defunding, uh, while at the same time, you know reminding us that these were the very centers of elite culture. This was exactly, you know, almost in, an exact reproduction Jefferson's dining room. Uh, and you know, the classics seminar in the form that was being protected by, um, uh, you know in, in extension I'm, you know, I mean I'm not, this is obviously not limited to classics and, and classics was one, also one of the disciplines that contributed to the, and continues to contribute most most vigorously to the critique of uh, of these hegemonies um, but uh, but in the case of the great books program and at Columbia uh, the core uh, certain aspects at least of, of the humanities core, um this this, uh, this continued the project of the production and reproduction of citizens, both in the enlightened sense and in the elite sense. Uh, and it's that, that with which we need to grapple.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're pointing to a lot of themes that come through the book. So you mentioned Ambedkar um, and the kind of silence that's required for his study in the library, but also the kind of silence that he... Um, is a proponent of as well, this kind of editing out of past histories that can no, no longer serve a democratic present. And there is sort of, the you really kind of bring together, um, you know, what you call the material and ideational uh, aspects of um, various themes across the book. And one that really struck me is one of this, this question of sound and silence from bells that, you know, uh, you know, assist the architectural materials of stone and brick and mediating students' experiences of time or of deferring time. Um, there's also, uh, you know, acoustic panels in chapels that do cause the the voice of a speaker to impressively reverberate. And then, you know, ones that, you know, say in Kresge Auditorium that, that cut out that reverberation altogether. And so these are things that are sort of running through the whole book. And I think it's worth um, reading the book kind of. Laterally, sort of across chapters, kind of looking for those um, those themes that that you know. I think many of my questions to you have been focusing on individual portions of the book, but what you're pointing out to, and what really sort of shines through in the book, and that readers should be attentive to as well, is that these are the you know recurring, even recursive themes that that uh, that are sort of very. Um, richly and carefully articulated across the book. And this sort of brings me to a question of methodology. Um, I was really struck by your use of archives. And, you know, you mentioned um, a talk that Saeed gave at a 1974 conference. and you know you're not sort of just talking about the content of of the the speech you're talking about the paper that he was writing on the 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 ways in which you know uh, you're discussing the the outline his edits and what each of those thing and, and not just in terms of content but in terms of its materiality uh but you have managed to turn findings from about 25 archives into uh 250 pages and i'm very curious about this process like how you've how you've organized it how you how you fade out what to put in and and what to leave out you know just sort of um you know these, this is the perennial question of the writer of uh, how how to um how to put something into book form knowing the limitations of the book form you know because in some ways your book could very easily be a series of, of of um it could be a diagram that you can make you know uh, endlessly click into it. Could be this sort of interactive website. It could. It could be a number of things, um, and yet it is a book. And so, how do you how do you sort of work with the the, the materiality and, and media of the book form? Um, how you know what what was your process in doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. That's. I mean, this is like <laughs> sort of the impossible question that all authors have to uh, confront at some point. I'll, I'll try to answer the several layers of your question with a kind of allegory from a different, another archive, uh, uh, one of the many, as you say, that I visited, in this case at Tuskegee Institute and um, in a historically black institution you know, in Alabama. And um, that it figures it ultimately wound up, the uh, material from that archive figuring in in the chapter uh, that deals both with the, the in again a kind of another kind of dialectic uh, the northern uh, founding and architecture and, and infrastructure of the <clears throat> women's colleges in the northeast uh, and historically black institutions principally in the southeast uh, of which I use Tuskegee, not some of the more you know like Howard or Fisk or. or uh, uh as as the sort of central case uh and um and the, this you know deals with the debate slash dialogue between Booker D. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and Du Bois is another figure whose shadow is cast across the entire book although I have left it to others and have relied on others to do the important work of of filling out uh the 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 sort of filling out that shadow and filling out that history and responding to its challenges Uh, but uh but but amongst the challenges posed by the archive at tuskegee was one uh that kind of unforgettably related to two artifacts that were in in the space because you know university archives are very different some you know so we can contrast the columbia archives where the Said papers are very well appointed and all kinds of, you know, protocols and, you know, and so on. With with the, you know, less well resourced uh, archive at Tuskegee, um, which nonetheless, as I was reminded by its caretaker, very it's very dedicated caretaker, um, uh, contains the most comprehensive uh, records of lynchings in during the. Jim grow south, uh, and and so on the wall of the was, of the of the you know this very modest space, um, there's a noose, and uh, it was pointed out to me uh, that and others also in who were working because our you know this kind of work is also like other people, you know and you have to be very quiet and and respectful of others, but in this case we had a conversation. Uh, And uh, it was, you know, that, that the, that, that, you know, that collection held the records of the lynching, the life, in other words, that was lost, the murder, uh, uh, executed by that noose. Uh, And there was also a brick. And, and, and this is, it's really that the noose is, running in the background of the story of the brick, which is the story that I do tell uh, in um, in that chapter. Uh, we, we, why? Because the bricks in the early days of Tuskegee were made by the students. Uh, this was part of Booker T. Washington's sort of pedagogy of self-help. It was also pragmatic because they couldn't afford bricks. Uh, and, and it was a particular kind of training you know, into uh, a kind of vocational training. That again, like the the other cases in in the engineering schools, was not simply, even though Tuskegee really was a, 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 in its founding a kind of vocational institute, was not simply you know uh, pragmatic or utilitarian. There was a profound, you know, I mean, news kind of says it all: uh, a symbolism and 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 a kind of aspirational program again contested amongst Washington and Du Bois kind of baked into those bricks uh, and uh, and so again the intimacy and the extimacy, we could say but, uh, of, of media complexes and so uh, but also of archives right so you have this 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 the horror that is that is you know quite dispassionately recorded in an archive like that and but also the hope, um, the you know, in Jefferson's words, I uh, sorry, uh, in, in Washington's words yeah. that's an interesting <laughs> twist. <laughs> the other Washington in Booker T, uh, in his words, uplift, not Washington or Jefferson. Um, and, uh, but, but uh, in, in Du Bois' words, passage. And that's different. And for Du Bois, this was a passage through what he called the gates of toil. Yes, it might be necessary for the youth, the, the black youth recently emancipated in the South uh, to learn, you know, manual skills in order to build a society somewhat autonomous, somewhat, you know, a free society uh, yeah, in the aftermath during Jim Crow, because this is all happening after Jim Crow. And uh, I mean, the, the debate is happening. Uh, and uh, you know, in partnership with you know, uh, white abolitionists and/or philanthropists, um, but uh, but ultimately for Du Bois, the passage of what at the time he referred to as the talented tenth, which was the statistical concept that correlates very much with the kind of social statistics that were proliferating and that were actually the basis. For uh, Turner's frontier thesis, and proliferated in what would, you know, later become the, the, the scientific laboratories, were still more or less under construction during the late 19th century. That, but, but, but so the passage fr- from the the manual and practical learning into higher learning, as he still conceived it, as a kind of neo Kantian Du Bois trained and study having studied done graduate work in Germany. Um, uh, was was still the the aim and so he his his focus was on uh building out humanities curricular or curricular and or curricular of higher learning uh in the what we now call the hbcus and in in these colleges to become universities the um run founded and run uh by you know basically uh a new black elite uh so um so that That's that's a kind of you know allegory of the archive, if you like. That that is in solidarity with Said because Said, of course, although his own battles were fought fought elsewhere, uh, is uh, is uh, uh, was a a very eloquent uh, spokesman on behalf of the oppressed and and, um, and and wrote in solidarity. In the text that I'm referring to uh, with Frantz Fanon, uh, that that I you know I I really I decided to begin the book with with Said's papers partly again as as I said out of homage but also out of uh, Said was a colleague at Columbia whom I met you know once or twice but didn't really get to know unlike other uh, senior colleagues from whom i uh, some of whom were named in the book uh, from uh, whom I've learned an enormous amount. Uh, but, but uh, because he was uh, ill um, already at the time. But um, but I did want to, you know, want to recognize the importance that his work had had for mine. And so this this was one way of doing it. So that was a kind of, you know, <laughs> something sort of personal about it. I, visiting at Columbia Said's archive was sort of getting to know some, somebody who, who I didn't really know personally. Uh, although I, I really had, I actually had the privilege later on of interacting with and working with other aspects of the institution with which Saeed was very closely involved, and, um, and so uh, the, uh, so but you know not to 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 elevate one particular figure. There's also a, a moment in that section in, which points to Said's dandyism <laughs> and his personal affect, and so was well known and, you know, often remarked upon. Uh, and and you know a certain kind of elite uh, disposition, uh, and um, that that comes out in his music criticism actually maybe more than in his literary criticism. Uh, and I and and it's with that with with which I actually begin the book his his comments and he begins his his text uh, on this edition of of a Glenn Gould recording, um, which reduces down to the black plastic of the LP, uh, but also to the very distant balcony in the in the soviet actually uh, music hall uh, you know kind of symphony hall uh, in which um, gould performed and to which gould adjusted his performance at least by his own account uh, who uh, gould uh, uh, a performer uh, an artist who was notoriously famously uh, fastidious about the site uh, the studio mostly of uh Performance and the, re- the in- instrumentation of the recording, and and so on. So, so that's also this is also a way of introducing the concept uh, of the media complex, kind of through the Said archive, and even through a small typographic error, uh, which uh, is in in one of the publications of that text. Uh, that we, you know, just to remind us is that we're all human; we all err. <laughs> We all make errors, even the eminent among us. And 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 I'm sure you know. I I don't know. I'm sure, I don't want if I want to invite readers to point out the errors in in the book. But in the in the preface, I I make the required gesture of, of insisting that all of those are mine. Uh, but but it, so you know, in terms of your the, finally the, the how to put it all together. Uh, you know, that, that I, I'm referring to those kind of eras because there's also a lot of different, there are many different literatures and discourses and names and dates and, 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 and you know, bits and pieces that don't necessarily string together in, in a sing, single timeline or chronology that also one needed to keep in mind and, and keep track of all along. And so the way I decided to try to do this was to, to, to make the fragments speak as much as possible to let that the, the bits and pieces do the talking and simply to listen to them you know that's why I'm'm I'm saying listening to the brick and to the noose I, I went into that library to that archive in Tuskegee you know thinking I was this is what I did I read all the, the these reports and the trust you know that sort of presence of course all the kind of official documentation is there didn't have to in the end because it was later put online or maybe it already was um, and uh and then but yet there was the brick and then there was the brick yard which i was able to see as well uh no longer in use and and that in that case the material space and, 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 and you know the, the the material the hardware literally uh of in the building in which the, ar- the archive was housed was just as important and so um so those fragments bits and pieces of hardware essentially are what i've tried to collect and gather so so yes since you're referring to to a kind of museology of the archive if you like that 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 this is a kind of museum uh, uh, I don't I don't whether it's an archaeology museum or an art history you know an art museum architecture museum or 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 a, or a, <clears throat> a museum of media of science and technology is up to the reader but i really did did try to think about how to best allow the artifacts collected to speak uh, and 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 to and to speak and i tried to also to speak back with them and, and to set one in conversation with another uh, and and you know to build out the relations the networks the the but also the the contradictions and conflicts amongst and between the speakers which is not to exclude uh, you know, I know well that this is a debate uh, amongst those of us who do this kind of work uh the humans the you know in a sense more legible and audible speakers who as it turns out, I think this is more or less true we all have to admit uh, of all academics who like to hear their own voices echoed back to them uh, as I am doing now and And I do notice that the particular interface that we are using does not reverberate in quite the way that was built into the Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago, very carefully carefully by the acoustic engineers, such that the speaker at the lectern, who could be an ecclesiastical speaker or a secular speaker, a professor or a priest, um, could hear in very, very slight delay, you know, and just the reverberation of their own voice so that their own insecurities could be assured, so that they could be made, could be affirmed by that echo, which we all know. We recognize it, we, we, we miss it when we don't hear it. I <laughs> we have to acknowledge that and admit that, uh, we who speak in public in different ways and, and through, uh, with and through uh, different different media, um, so you know those tile, with the tiles and the plaster and all the the elements that that in the different uh, auditoria that you mentioned um, that I collect amongst the other pieces of hardware uh, are are instruments that enable to enable, but also condition and 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 um, in frame, uh, in the sense of giving meaning to uh, speech, both public and private, uh, in a manner that I think we all we do have to uh, take into account as as we attempt to do to to in this case, to like my, my attempt was to write something that was not simply and despite the even personal uh, aspects that I'm mentioning, but. That was not simply an autobiography uh, of some, you know, uh, idealized institution, or uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, a, a, a sort of um, uh, a simple dismantling, uh, a uh, uh, you know, uh, a sort of a direct frontal attack on uh, the the institution. This is a critique for sure. But but critique uh, is something that is practiced out of care um, and 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 commitment and and perhaps as a form of responsibility uh, to these institutions, which as, as I argue I say in a couple of places in the book need to be protected and defended against assault by those who, who truly uh, seek to um, either occupy them, take them over, or. Um, or, or destroy them, uh, destroy and, and truly extinguish, you know, this flame uh, of enlightenment, uh, uh, but while at the same time recognizing that critique is necessary uh, for renewal. And I'm not just talking about, you know, kind of minor reform sometimes. And I think this may be the, the time in which we speak, uh, maybe one of those in which it's it's necessary to think structurally. Uh, and deeply, uh, or shall we say infrastructurally, uh, about, uh, about what needs to be changed, transformed, uh, about the institutions for which we care, uh, and that in some ways, <laughs> care for us. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to be mindful of your time, but thank you so much for taking time to chat about your book. Um, Uh, Usually we ask at the end of the interview whether you could share what you're working on now. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, but thank you again for making time to chat about this.
1: Thank you. I I will only just say very quickly that I am, am working on two projects, one about the political ecology of oil and engineering, which derives from one of the chapters that we discussed in some of the archives that are there, and another Which has to do with the the historical and and philosophical relation between architecture and philosophical aesthetics. That builds on the problem posed by symbolic form at the end of the book, and returns to questions concerning ideation that that we were meant discussing in the beginning uh, of our conversation. So all of that is hopefully to come uh, and maybe to be continued.
0: Well, I look forward to that, and thank you so much again for taking the time to chat about your really rich, really complex book. That I really encourage uh, listeners to dive into. There's there's so much that we just could not cover in this in this interview, and um, I really encourage readers, well, listeners rather, to to become readers as well and uh, to take on the the materiality of the book. Well, thank you very much again, Reinhold, and this discussion of uh, the book. Knowledge Worlds, Media, Materiality, and The Making of the Modern University, published by Columbia University Press in 2021, was brought to you by the Architecture Channel of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our channel, wherever you get your podcasts.